Lord, we are so thankful that you are faithful. Lord, we greatly appreciate that you continue to make yourself available to us, that you continue to gather a people together underneath your power, underneath your glory, and underneath your word. Lord, we ask big things this morning. We ask that you take the humble efforts of your servant and you transcend them, Lord, in the power of your spirit. You open up our hearts, which are so prone to be closed. You speak words that shatter mountains, and you lift us up, Lord, to heights of glory. We ask that we can see you, that we can know you, and we can, Lord, be transformed by you for your honor, for your glory, and for your sake. And we pray it in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, Brad and I uh, often give Peter the hard work of putting together these series, and Peter comes up with a lot of this you know, uh, detail for us. And I don't much care whether he came up with the series title himself or whether he borrowed it. Sometimes there's wisdom in borrowing. It doesn't make any difference to me. But if you think through the series that we're in, the series in the Old Testament, God's love to a thousand generations. I cannot think of a more appropriate title It gives us a story of what God is about. His love to a thousand generations, to an infinite amount. His love forever. The Bible, as you can see, as we've went through different aspects from Abraham on into Moses, Joshua, the period of the judges, entering into the period of the kings, there's an individual story in all the books of the Bible in the Old Testament But there is a macro story that every single one of these stories encapsulates. The entire Bible has a fall line, if you will. God, in his infinite and unending love, is gathering a people for himself to be in relationship with forever. That, my friends, is the gospel story. And that is the big picture And in every single story, we will find the individual aspect and we will find that bigger aspect. One of the ways you can judge us at the pulpit, the pulpit team is, are you having a greater love for seeing those stories in your personal devotions? It's one thing if the message can go out here. It's another thing if we can be moved to be students of the word ourselves. And by God's grace, we hold ourselves to that standard, so give us feedback. We are in 2 Samuel. We continue to skip along, you know, maybe one time in each book. So be a student of the word and go back and forth. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Just for context, we've went from the period of the judges. God has started with Abraham and all the way through. We had the period of the judges. And last week, we had that God said to them, fine, you can have kings. You want a king? There was a couple issues with that. There was sin. In the motivation, there was sin in the timing, but God says, you can have a kingdom, you can do it, you can have a king, you can have a monarchy, I can do it a couple different ways, let's do it. Samuel raised up afterwards, if we want to read through 1 Samuel, Saul as the first king. Where we find ourselves today, we are at the second king, David. Familiar story, the shepherd boy David is king. He's been king for a while. He's been a warrior king. He had a lot of other things happen in his life, and depending how we go, we'll see how much we talk about David. But we do find David as the king. 
You might know that there's Israel and Judah. There's the two kingdoms. David is now at the peak of the power of the people of Israel. The kingdoms are united. They are not always so. Israel and Judah, when we, t- when we term it all of Israel, it includes Israel and Judah. Both kingdoms, northern and southern, united right now. If you will, they've defeated the Philistines. They have the Ark of the Covenant back. They've taken Jerusalem. All is good in Israel, as good as it ever gets. There's a time, if you will, of peace and prosperity. And that takes us to our text. We're going to break up our text today. We're going to take a look at what we have. It's easy sometimes for us to put it into context. So here's what it is. We're going to talk about three aspects of our discussion in 2 Samuel 7. They are David's passion, a dream, a vision that he had. We're going to talk secondly about God's response to his passion and vision. And then third, David's response back to God. Sounds like two people talking. Sounds like a relationship, right? Sounds like God's love relationship with his people. Hey, I have a thought. Here's my reaction to it. Let me give you a reaction back. Three things. It's like you and I speaking. And we, by God's grace, get to listen in. And it's recorded for us in a posterity. Second Samuel chapter 7 begins as such. Now when the king, King David, lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. This theme of a house is going to be a big theme for us today. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, see, now I dwell in his house. So here's David now. He's got this time of prosperity. David had a, his house was a big, big house. All right. It was majestic. It was a, a gift actually built for him. So he's got this majestic house. He has a time of peace. He's arrived where he has some rest. Things are going well. Maybe quote, like some of us would say in our retirement. Once we've worked really hard, we've worked through all the troubles of life, we've saved up a little bit, we actually get a moment of rest and we look around. And when David looked around, he said, I'm living in a mansion, the Ark of the Covenant, taking the Shekinah of God, his abode is still in a tent. And David was a sensitive man. He was a poet and a warrior, not a combination that goes together all the time, but he's this warrior poet, and he's sitting around sensitive to God, and he said, this can't be. I can't have a mansion and God have a tent. So David's got it on his heart. I'm guessing that he had this on his heart a long time. I wouldn't mind every once in a while. I'm thinking that David's in battle, and when he's kind of got a free moment, he's in battle, he's like, you know, we got to build God a house. You know, I better focus here. It happens to all of us. I wouldn't be surprised that David had this growing vision of someday, someday, if we put all this together, if we settle God's people, I'm going to build him a house. I'm going to build him a house. So what are a couple things we can take away here? Is it wrong to have a dream? Is it wrong to have a vision for what we can do for the Lord? I would say it is not. 
Many times as we arrive, if you will, where we have times of prosperity, when we have the funding, when we have the time, how many children's homes, how many orphanages, how many libraries, how many wonderful things have been built in times where people had access like David did, where they had the time, the peace, the prosperity to do it. And God puts a vision and he's amen. David had a vision. He shared it with his closest counselors. He shared it with Nathan. Nathan, I'm going to build God a house. Nathan says, absolutely. What's wrong with that? Do it exactly. God wants you to do it. Tells us a little bit about how much we rely on our counselors at times as well. Because this was David's vision, but God has a response. Let's take a look at God's response. Read with me, starting in verse 4 as we continue on. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So after Nathan had said this to David, David, Nathan goes back to his own house, and the Lord comes to Nathan, and he says, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And the violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you a rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. God's response to his vision. God had heard what David had said, I want to build you a house, and God responds. He responded through the prophet Nathan. Nathan took the words 
to David directly, and I believe that there are four lessons for us. We have these three categories, of, if you will, this conversation back and forth between David and God. Here, I believe there are four lessons in God's response to David. Number one, the dreams are okay, but they need to be subject to God's will. Our best dream should be this, if you will. Lord, I am available. Use me. In the absence of God pulling us somewhere, can we have a dream? Can we put it out there? I say we can and we should. But if God pulls us another way, the lesson we see is, Lord, my greatest dream is to be used of you, to be available for you, to be a vessel for you. A second one for us here, we are tempted to dream big dreams. There's something in us that wants to be the doer, wants to accomplish something, wants to leave a legacy. Although much of this is good, there could be some of it that is for the visual. It is for the pride. Not sure where it happened here for David, but it is a part of our lives, I am sure. The one who wants to build the house. What God has told us here in a lesson we can take away, we will find out if we study more of Samuel that God said to David, you're not going to build the house, but it's okay to build the foundation. You can gather the materials, you can get the guys set up, but somebody else is going to build on your foundation. A lesson that hit me this week, friends, was am I the type of person who's willing to put the work in on the foundation so that somebody else can build the house. I heard it said well with the old time writers, we are a people that like to plant apple trees so that we can eat the apples ourselves. Let us ask God to impugn this lesson in us to be the people that will plant trees for others to eat. If we lay the foundation, Apostle Paul said this with Apollos, One can water and the other can water and one can labor and one can reap. We all work in God's vineyard. God told them directly, you are not going to build the house. A third lesson. Why did God say no? One of the things that God is putting out here is that the house does not contain me. Have I ever needed a temple before. And he reminded David, he goes through it all. He says, David, we're, we came from the wilderness. We've been wandering around. I've destroyed your enemies. I did all of this with the house, all the leaders. Did you ever, God's rhetorical question, don't you love God's rhetorical questions? He's, David, have I ever asked any of the leaders, where's my house of cedar? Do you ever recall me asking, where's my house? Haven't we done well so far? So why do you think I need a house, a mansion. If I get one, let's make sure we're clear. So what is God saying in a lesson? If I have one, praise God, praise be almighty, but I do not need one. We as a people think at times that we need a church, we need a creed, we need a building We need a program so that God can work. God works 
above the buildings, above the programs, above the creeds. They are subset to him. Nothing wrong with them, but he operates above and around and through them. They do not encapsulate him. He encapsulates them. The church is not up and running when the final brick is up. The church is up and running when God's people are up and running. And God is saying that to David. David, don't make a category error here. Don't think it's going to get better if you build me a temple. It doesn't get any better than me leading you, than me parting the Red Sea, than me taking down Jericho. It doesn't get any better than me pulling you out of being a shepherd and setting you up. It doesn't get any better. I am your leader. He's just pounding the message home. Is our third lesson. God does not need it. May appreciate it, but does not need it. And our lesson four, the most remarkable lesson, if you want to forget the other three, I would rather you focus on lesson number four. God builds a house for us before we ever build anything for him. He turned it around on David. He said to him, I will build for you. You need to look at this. Let's start in verse 11. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares, right here, here's we're getting into it. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David's offering to build God a house, and God says, no. What I'm going to do is I'm going to build you a house. So the house here is a couple different ways, right? uh, David already had a house, i.e. a mansion. He wanted to build God a house, i.e. a temple, to house the Ark and the Covenant, the presence of God, if you will, as we have the Holy Spirit today, captured around in each of our hearts. And he says, I'm going to build you a house, i.e. a dynasty. I'm going to build you a dynasty. You want to build me a temple? I'm going to build you a dynasty. There is so much in here, and we need to unpack this for a moment. God is not looking for what we can do for him. He is looking for what we can receive from him. That is critical, my friends. The difference between religion and a gospel story is captured right here. God is saying, you, David, you're starting to get a little bit on me. I know it's good. I know it's want. You want to give to me. You want to do something for me. You're almost thinking I have a need. There's all these things we want to do, 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 so we can can show God we're understanding. We want to give him glory and honor. He says, I don't need that. You're starting to get religious. What I want you to do is to receive from me. We're starting to get this kingdom. David, I am trying to build a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom for you. I started with Abraham. I started to create a people where there was no people. I pulled it all together and we grew up and then you went and were captives and I pulled you out with Moses and I pulled you out where the kingdom is growing and I'm pulling it out and we're getting you into the promised land. We got through the period of the judges. We got to the period of the kings. We got Saul. Saul's not it. Saul, David's not Saul's son. 
David is a different king, not in a line. So here's Saul, here's over here's David, and God says, I want to make a kingdom for you. Don't, this is not about what you can do for me. This is about what I am doing for you. You want to explain the gospel story to people? You want to tell them, they say, how am I going to understand this? How am I going to understand this? It's very simple. It's about God's furious love for you. He's pursuing you and what he wants to do for you. And all you got to do is accept it. I'm sure he says more than that. Well, it says it a bunch of different ways, a bunch of different times, and a bunch of different stories. But it basically is telling you, well, that might be the New Testament, but the Old Testament, it's a bunch different story. No, it's not. It's the exact same story about God pursuing his people because he loves them, because he wants to build them a house. He wants to build you and me a house and put us in. Religion is what we think we can do for God. Salvation and the gospel story is what God has done and continues to do for us. It is that simple, people, and that is the story that is getting pounded home here, and we need to take a look at it. We need to understand it. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now he's talking about he's going to take, so we got two things here. We got got, uh, Solomon, we got the son. David is going to be the patriarch of this line of this kingdom. David is the patriarch in his line, Solomon, and it's now going to go a line. We had Saul. We had, if I had an you know, or chart up here, we'd look at it this way. We had Saul, went sideways to David, and from David it goes down through Solomon. So God says, I'm going to work through your line. I'm going to create a house, a dynasty for you. But in that dynasty, I am creating something bigger and deeper as well. I am creating the final king, the king of kings, the Messiah, This is where we're seeing it. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom. The kingdom of Solomon did not last forever. It is not by accident that it says this kingdom would last forever. If that was the case, we'd have that kingdom here. We'd have that monarchy right here. We don't have it. Israel doesn't have it today. Go look at Israel's government. It is not a monarchy in the line of Solomon. What is forever is the line that came from there. It is the Messiah. I never thought I'd be referencing Matthew chapter 1 so many weeks in a row, but we're going to do it again. And if we're, we're never going to forget Matthew chapter 1. I still owe Peter a dollar because he did pick it up that first time. Matthew chapter 1. Get this in our heads. We are talking now about a kingdom that will be established forever. I'm going to read verse 16 in 2 Samuel while you're getting to Matthew chapter 1. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Those are some amazing promises. So they're either true or not true. If they're not true, we got a problem. We need to check something else out. But if it's true, how amazing would that be? What would that tell you? That God is alive, that God is prophetic, that he's able to do what he says, that he controls time and space and kingdoms. Matthew chapter 1. This is why, again, we do not just go through these genealogies and say, well, there's chapters that are important, there's chapters that are not. This genealogy is about as important as it gets. The book of the genealogy, chapter 1, verse 1, of Jesus Christ. So get that. If you're writing notes, it's okay to write in your Bibles. If you're writing something good, doodling, not so good, but something important, a little bit better. The book of the genealogy 
of Jesus Christ. What is this now? We're starting the New Testament with the genealogy, the line of Jesus Christ. This is the most important thing that God had for us to start. What's there, comma? The son of David. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, comma, the son of David. Why is he called the son of David? Why is one of the terms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ the son of David? That is what he's referred to often because he comes in the line of David because God was establishing in 2 Samuel 7 an eternal kingdom, a messianic kingdom, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And he said to us, you need to understand this. There's going to be people in Copley, Fairlawn, Bath, Ohio, reading this a couple thousand years later, and they like TV. They like commercials. They don't study this stuff out. I've got to write this down for them because otherwise they're not going to do their homework and figure this out, right? So here it is. It's very short for us. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We focused on verses 2 through 5 multiple times with Rahab and Ruth and the other stories, but kick ahead to verse 6, and Jesse, so it's going through from Abraham all the way down, and it gets, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Remember David as a shepherd, he went to Jesse, he's out there as a shepherd, he's the youngest one, he's a son. He's out there, and they go, don't you have any other sons? Yeah, I do got this other one over here. Get him over here. Jesse is the father of David. Continue on. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. There's a whole other sermon there again, that the line comes from Bathsheba. Isn't that right, Sherry? By the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. I'm going to keep reading these because I think it's amazing to see how God uses people in space and time. And Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of their deportation to Babylon. Big time out, Babylon, whoo, big trouble time. And after the deportation to Babylon, remember we talked about that Daniel and everybody else, whoo, here they come back. After they're coming back from ba- Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of, of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. God wants to build a house, a lineage for David. The line of David to Solomon to Christ is being established for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7 of a part of God's love story to a thousand generations, which includes you and I. We had David's passion, David's vision. We had God's response. David, I don't want you to build me a house 
I'm not done building a house yet for you. God is a God of love. So what is David's response? It's important for us, 2 Samuel 7, and this is our third phase of what God has left for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David hears all this through the prophet Nathan. He had this grand idea, build a temple. I propose to you that many of us would say, God, I get all that. I still want to build a house. I don't know what's what's wrong with building a house. I'm still going to build a house. We can still do that. If I build a house, does that stop that? Does Solomon somehow not come? Of course it doesn't. I'm going to still do it. And say we don't, I suspect that we do more of that. It is hard for us to be flexible. But what happens with David? Nathan shares this. Verse 18, we pick up. Then King David went in and he sat before the Lord and said, So picture him now going into the the tent, sitting before the Ark of the Covenant, sitting down, if you will, before the Lord. And he said to him, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods? And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And the conclusion of his prayer. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. There's three key aspects in there. David goes in. He hears the word of the Lord. He goes to the tabernacle and he sits before God. God is now not contained in a temple. Jesus was the living and abiding tabernacle. And he said when he took Jesus up, who tabernacled, who was the spirit of God in human form, in the incarnation, when he took him up into heaven to be with him, he left the spirit now, and the spirit is with us. He is with us everywhere. David went in to be with the presence of God, to worship with him. We can, when we hear the word of the Lord, sit down in our study, in our living room, at the Barnes and Nobles, at school, in our car, and be 
in the presence of God, communing with him. Be in the presence of God. That is a change of heart and is a change of mindset. That is not a change of location. So David goes and bees in the presence of God, and he basically has confession and humility. In verse 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? It is important for you and I, when we pray, to understand what God has done for us. The more we understand of God's greatness, the more we understand our depravity. He continues right along. He has this humility that is so apparent and a confession. He didn't say, Lord, I did this. I fought harder. I did more. He literally sits here, the king of the greatest kingdom in the world, having God speak through him, taking over Israel and Judah. And the Philistines can't stand against him. They just took Jerusalem back. He outweighed Saul. He had all of this. And he says, who am I? If you want to know if you are a Christian... One good question to ask is, does this question come up in our hearts? A Christian, and moved by the Spirit, when we're alone, will go, how, Lord, did you come to save me? How did I get to a point of salvation, knowing my wickedness, knowing my brokenness, knowing what has happened with Bathsheba, knowing Uriah, knowing all of this, how have you come to save me? If we're thinking of what we have done for God and how this makes sense that we are a Christian, we may need to think again a confession and a humility that imparts the beginning, and a thanksgiving and praise that goes in. Because what does he continue on? You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind. For you knew your servant, O Lord, and you came back. He's starting to think through. What he's thinking through in his mind now, he's giving thanks and praise. He goes, I was a shepherd. I was the least in my father's house. You came and took me out. I grew up as a big warrior, but then Saul came out. I was an outlaw. I was in caves, and everybody was going against me. You protected me then, and you restored me to a position of the king. And not only a king, but pulling it all together. Oh, God, how have you been doing all of this? I give you praise. Confession and humility moves us into praise and worship. And then David's final section, if you will, he even brings it up for us himself. He does his own segue. In verse 27, he concludes, Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Lord, because of that, I have the courage to say what I'm about to say to you. Remember when you've heard in Scripture that we approach the throne of grace boldly? David is giving it to us here. He's saying, Lord, I know you've promised this. You've promised the kingdom. You've promised it's going to come through my line. I'm not going to do some false humility now and go, no, Lord, it's okay. Do somebody else. It's okay. It's okay. Go somebody else. Let somebody else have a turn. He said, Lord, you said it's going to come through me. You said that you want to do this for your glory through me. And therefore, Lord, I have courage to say what I'm about to say. 
And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to me, to Stan, to Rodney, to whatever, to Ted, to Chuck, to Lois. Pick your name out. You've promised this thing to me, Lord. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless my house, your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So how do we do that? We pray the scripture back to the Lord. We say, Lord, you have said to me that you want to use me, that you want to bring people to know you through me. You want me to live a life that is growing in faith, adding to faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. You want me to be steadfast, to persevere to the end. You're not saying, Lord, I hope I make it. You have told me that your will is for me to be your son in eternity. Therefore, Lord, I turn this back to you. I'm asking your word to be sure in my life. Do what you promised. Grow me. Chastise me. Discipline me. Keep me. I pray that, Lord, boldly and with courage because it is what you told me you want. So what have we learned? I hope we've learned that it's great to dream and have big dreams, but that our dreams are, Lord, I am available, use me. He needs less a house. He needs less a program. He needs less a creed. He wants me. Religion is putting things back up to God. The gospel story is what we receive from God, and we rest, and God wants us to rest in that. If you want to get into a whole third study, Sherry, you and I will you know, talk about this later, a whole third study, yeah, it could be this idea of why God did not want, in Chronicles he talks about, I don't want David to build it because he's a man of war. All right, there's a whole study there. Solomon was a man of peace. God wants us to rest in his temple and his mansions in eternity forever. In God's eternal seventh-day rest That's where his house is built. He has mansions for us to be with him, to be in his presence. Is God doing amazing things and giving all kinds of cool stuff to say, David, I'm going to let Solomon, because you are a man of war. That doesn't disqualify you. didn't say that it disqualified him here. But I needed you for this. And I just kind of want to tell the story with Solomon. I want him to have something to build on. Because it's more than one person. We have learned a few things. When we want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to say, Jesus Christ came and he died for me. I can show you in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I can show you how God is revealing his love to a thousand generations. This is just a story, God's love story, recording it for us through how he creates kingdoms and in those kingdoms, he keeps them. The kingdom of Christ has come. Christ is our king He reigns in our heart forever and we shall never lose him because God is keeping his people. Today, if you have not received God in your heart, if you have not been adopted into his family, he has built this family for you. It's an expansive family. It has room. It says, I built it from Abraham up through David and up through his line. And that line gets big. You saw the, it's like, it's open doors. If you want to be a part of the family, guys, I built it literally for you. This is religion God's way. Come to me because I came to get you. Let us bow down as we pray to God again.
Lord, the only thing that's coming to my mind is to pray your scripture back to you. To sum it all up, it seems to me that you've done it for us, Lord, in 1 John, when you said that we love you because you first loved us. Lord, let us understand that today. Let us walk out of here what we are able to accomplish in your grace, the blessings that you allow us to give back to you only exists because you loved us first. And we ask, Lord, that you take every person in this room and all the people that we are praying for and you pour out your spirit upon them so that they know like they've never known before. Impart on that to me, Lord, today that I'm loved, that a love that I cannot comprehend today and for eternity. We give you that love back, and we say amen.